Today's sermon text is called Jesus Never Changes. And as you open your Bibles, we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 16. So as you're turning there right now, I'm going to go ahead and and read our scripture for the day. As um, we begin and you find your scripture, please stand as we read God's word. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning. I am uh, Mike Dewey, and uh, that was Sandy Dewey, my better half, and... I'm uh, excited that uh, we, we are able to participate on the same day because if anything happens, goes wrong during the sermon, she can step right in and take over. So <laughs> if, you're, if you're good with that. All right. I, all right. Come senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway. Don't block up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled. There's a battle outside and it's raging. It'll soon shake your windows and rattle your walls for the times they are changing. I feel like everyone at some point in their life goes through a Bob Dylan phase. And there's probably no more iconic Dylan song than the times they are changing. It's my favorite one. There are 85 different versions of the song recorded by over 40 different artists in 14 different languages. And while the song was originally released in 1964 and was written by Dylan to serve as a, uh, as a rally cry for change for the turbulent 60s, it has come to transcend that period. And it serves now as an anthem for change in general. It was famously quoted by Steve Jobs in 1984 when he unveiled the Macintosh computer. Personal computers have undoubtedly changed the world. But the lyrics of the song sum up how society in general has come to view change in those who stand in its way. Don't stand in the doorway. Don't block up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled. When the political, social, intellectual and moral values of a society begin changing with increasing force and popularity. 
then the person who stands in the way is viewed as bad, as stalling, as blocking progress. And isn't that the way that many people in our society view Christians? We live in turbulent times with rapidly evolving moral values, cultural mores that have stood for generations overturned in a matter of years. So where does that leave us? As Christians who read the Bible as God's literal, unchanging word, as the standard for what is right and wrong. We're increasingly viewed as old-fashioned, right? Narrow-minded, unscientific, ignorant, bigoted, perpetrators of hate. And no one wants to be those things, right? We, we want to be the ones singing right alongside Dylan, not the ones standing in the doorway, blocking up the halls, stalling progress. I've seen too many good pastors in Bible-believing churches wrestle with cultural challenges and ultimately compromise what they have believed. But that's not anything new, is it? Every succeeding generation of believers has faced its own challenge to compromise its beliefs and embrace what is trendy, popular, and accepted or has the imprimatur of the government or of the intellectual community. This morning, as we are drawing closer to the end of Hebrews, looking at the author's concluding remarks, and it's here that we find a very emphatic message to those Hebrew believers in his audience. Jesus never changes. Verse 8, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, you want to talk about iconic words? Move over, Mr. Dillon. There's uh, perhaps, uh, you know, those, those verses are among the, the most significant words in all of Scripture. And if Jesus never changes, then his word And his work never changes. And if his word and work never changes, then what the church is founded upon and what the church teaches and preaches never changes. What the author of Hebrews is telling his audience in this passage is that the church must resist the pressure to compromise the truth of the unchanging message and work of Jesus And because of that, you better believe that what was true for them and what God was speaking to them back then is true for us today. We, as Christians, today's church must resist the the pressure to compromise the truth of the unchanging message and work of Christ. I mentioned in a uh, previous message uh, that I gave here that, that many believe Hebrews to have been written Uh, to Hebrew believers in Rome around A.D. 68. You want to talk about the turbulent 60s. This was a church that was about to undergo severe persecution at the hands of the Roman government. They were beginning to see members of the church put to death simply for preaching the gospel and for refusing to deny Christ. They were also facing severe pressure from the Jewish community from which they had come. This was a church under attack but see we don't have to look hard to find ourselves in this passage and identify with them 
Look at what we've discussed in just the past few weeks here at Sojourn. Several weeks ago, we looked at verse 4, which states, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral. Just last week, we looked at verse 5, which tells us to keep our lives free from the love of money and to be content with what we have. I think in just those two verses, which make up the immediate context of our passage this morning, in them we see the dominant cultural pressures facing the church today. Society's view of marriage and sexuality, as well as the... uh, the ever-growing materialism and commercialism that confronts the church and Christians. And I think just from these challenges alone, we see many within the church abandoning their faith or reshaping it into something more in line with what society says is right. My main objective this morning is to simply exhort and encourage you that even in the face of constant pressure, to compromise our unchanging message, we must stand firm in the faith, proclaiming Christ to a world in need. I have three points to share with you this morning, all building off of this one simple truth. Jesus never changes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Open our hearts and our minds that we would hear from you. May I decrease so that you can increase. May it be your spirit that speaks to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. First, because Jesus never changes, our message to the world will never change. And I want to start by looking at verses 7 through 9. Now, this might seem axiomatic, but given how much and how fast everything in our society and culture seems to be changing, it's easy to think or natural to think that our message and beliefs should also change. But our author reminds us to reject this thinking. Verse 7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now the scripture here is not telling us to fall into a pattern of uh, rote mechanical imitation. This is not blindly following our pastor's words and actions regardless of what he says and does. Telling us to imitate their faith implies imitating their faithfulness. The leaders being referred to were imitating Christ. The outcome of their way of life implies how they lived. And these were leaders who spoke the word of God. And because they spoke God's word, the church was asked to follow them, to imitate them. Be faithful to Jesus as your leaders have been faithful to Jesus. But the truly emphatic point being made in this passage comes to us in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Since Christ is the same, the faith is the same. What we believe, what we preach, what we teach is the same. And those are the kind of leaders we are to remember and imitate. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That word forever literally means into the ages, to eternity. So so no matter what ages 
lie ahead, what cultural changes may come, he remains the same. This was introduced at the start of Hebrews, you might remember. Chapter 1, verse 12 says, you are the same and your years will have no end. And so it's fitting that our author reintroduces it here at the conclusion of Hebrews. The phrase, and forever, actually includes the other two concepts of yesterday and today. So there's an intentional redundancy, which is adding emphasis. How he was yesterday with our past leaders, how he is today during our present circumstances, so shall he be forever and for all future generations. This is the faith the early church was being called to imitate. And so must me, so must we. Today's world is not very big on looking back though, right? We, we value fresh, innovative ideas. We look forward. We strive to be progressive. And yet the paradigm for the church is to look back on preceding generations. And I love the words here used in verse 7, remember and consider. In the original language, remember carries the meaning of keep on remembering. We need to continually cultivate our memory regarding our past leaders. Consider implies careful observation and reflection to look back upon, to scan closely. Unfortunately, it's, it's all too easy to forget past generations, isn't it? Or to adopt uh, an arrogant attitude that says we don't need to look back. Just recently, we saw the passing of Billy Graham and A lot was talked about regarding his life and his ministry. And it's easy to say, well, that was a different time, right? I mean, that was a different time. We shouldn't shouldn't be looking back and trying to replicate what he did. Things have changed, and his approach won't work today. I found myself in several of those discussions. And you know what? Times do change. And our methods and our approaches need to adapt and evolve. There's no question about that. But let's not confuse methods with message. The power and simplicity of Billy Graham's message and the way he took every opportunity to preach salvation, the urgency of the gospel, that never changes. And I think we need to learn from that and we need to imitate that. We need to become students of our past leaders. That's not to say that every past leader is a model for us to imitate or that even the godly ones didn't make mistakes. But there are so many good men and women who have come before and whose lives can speak powerfully to us today. And we need to hear from them. Do you know who Henrietta Mears was? You may not be familiar with the name. You should be familiar with it. You're going to go home tonight and do a Google search on her, Henrietta Mears. She lived in the early part of the 20th century. She was a Sunday school teacher. Among her students, Billy Graham, Bill Bright, founder of Crew, Campus Crusade, Jim Rayburn, founder of Young Life, You want to talk about a spiritual legacy. I think she can teach us a few things. I think we need to look at her life and imitate her faith. 
Though times and leaders change, our Savior and our message and our mission never does. Now, one last thing before we move on to the second point. Verse 9 in our text here contrasts the stability of Christ and our message with the diverse and ever-evolving teachings and beliefs of mankind. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. History confirms that uh, there were many strange teachings that arose during the period of the early church. There were actually many that had to do with ceremonial foods. The Judaizers are one example. Uh, The Judaizers were a group of Christians insisting that converts to Christ still needed to keep the Old Testament ceremonial laws and the rituals, which would have included dietary restrictions. But our author here could actually be referring to the Essenes and Gnostics. They also had strange beliefs associated with food. But in response to these false beliefs, we are emphatically reminded that God's approval is secured by the cross of Christ, not by foods. As Ephesians tells us, by grace we are saved. That is the unchanging core of our message. Now, I don't want to minimize the danger that actually faced the young church. First of all, these Hebrew believers would have been severely tempted to somehow hold on to the Jewish traditions and ceremonies that they were raised up within. So Judaizers particularly would have offered a compelling message to them. But secondly, this is simply the inclination of fallen man. Something new, popular, or trendy comes along and and we're drawn to it. That's our nature. Strange doesn't necessarily mean bad. It simply refers to something new that departs from the purity of the gospel. And if it's curious, novel, enticing, then it's likely to be harder to resist. But here's how this verse connects to verse 7 and 8. Strange teachings always divert from the purity and simplicity of our message. They try to change some aspect of who Christ is and what He did on the cross and what our message should be. Beware of anyone who would twist the message to suit their purpose. Here's an actual quote from an evangelical pastor who's Seminar on evangelism I actually attended a few years back. This is what he said. The worst thing we can do to someone who is lost is tell them they are a sinner. To which I I thought to myself immediately, but why would we need a savior if we're not sinners? More generally, if you ever hear anything remotely like, I know everyone else in the past has understood this verse to mean such and such, but what it really means is run. (laughs) Or at least consider it with caution. We do sometimes make mistakes in our interpretation, but when we look at the tradition of the church, we see consistency in the core of the faith. In order to resist strange teachings, we must be familiar with the correct teachings. And we have a responsibility to be students of God's word ourselves. Remember, we don't blindly follow our leaders. We follow them if they're following Christ and living out the truth of God's word. But we can't do that properly 
if we don't know the word ourselves. If Jesus never changes, then our message must never change. And that means we must be diligent to not be swept or carried away by the temptation to compromise what we believe and preach. Second, because we hold to a message that never changes, the world's reaction to us will never change. Looking at verses 10 through 14. Now, just to give you a heads up, they're not going to like us much, right? Uh, But you're probably thinking, hey, tell me something I don't already know. But our author draws upon the parallel between the sin offering made on the Day of Atonement and Christ's sacrifice on the cross to attempt to provide an analogy for how the world is going to treat us as Christians and most importantly, how we should respond. I'm not going to rehash today all the complexities to the parallels and contrast between the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifices made in the tabernacle under the old covenant. That's been covered in previous messages and And if this is your first time visiting Sojourn, then you can visit our website where you can access all the sermons in this series. I want to focus simply on the one additional parallel not previously covered. Verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin and burned outside the camp. Verse 12 adds, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people. In Israel's wilderness period, the camp or encampment was the place where God's people lived and dwelt. And it's where the tabernacle sacrifices took place. The tabernacle being in the center of the camp. Those who were unclean or foreigners were to be outside the camp. When the high priest returned to the camp after taking the sacrifice outside to be destroyed, he had to wash himself before re-entering. Outside was bad. Inside was good. One's identity as an Israelite was directly tied to being in or out of the camp. The same can be said of Jerusalem. It's essentially the permanent encampment of Israel during the time of Jesus. Crucifixions took place outside the city, of, city gates of Jerusalem because it was considered a vile and unclean thing. Again, outside was bad, inside was good. So our author here in this passage is using this distinction to highlight in a very real sense that Jesus was being rejected by his own people, by his own community. Think about it. He preached a different message. He came into conflict with the prevailing religious sentiments of the community. He wouldn't change his message. He wouldn't bring it into conformity with what the Jewish authorities believed it should be. And so they mocked him, rejected him, and ultimately handed him over to be beaten and put to death. They sent him outside the encampment of God's people. And that's the context that brings us to where we can understand what our author is calling believers to do in verses 13 and 14. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, 
but we seek the city that is to come. Now, I want you to think about what the writer of Hebrews is asking his readers to do. These believers were part of the Jewish culture and society. So standing with Christ put them in conflict with their community, with their heritage, their people, and at many times their family. Their beliefs put them in conflict with the Romans as well. And as a result, they were persecuted. And many even paid the ultimate price of being put to death. They became outcasts, just like Jesus. And I love how the author has phrased this here. The literal translation here is, let us keep on going out there to him. See, it's an acknowledgement that our author understands how difficult this exhortation would be for them to hear and to actually do. It's not a one-time decision, folks. It's something that they would struggle with daily and must continually do. And so must we. See, as a church, we're called to stand upon the unchanging person, work, and message of Jesus and to resist the world's attempts to get us to accept false teachings and values and to compromise what we believe. And when we do that, we are placing ourselves right alongside Jesus, outside the city and all that it represents. If the world rejected Him, why would we expect to be treated any differently? 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. See, because we hold to a message that never changes, the world's reaction to us will never change. It will be rejection. It will be ridicule. Constant pressure to conform and change our message to come in line with theirs. And just like it wasn't easy for the early church, it's not going to be easy for us. I mean, everyone wants to be accepted, right? To feel part of the larger community. Especially because we are a part of society and culture. We contribute to it. It defines in many ways who we are. And that's okay. But we live in a fallen world. And culture is fallen. And when culture comes into conflict with the unchanging message of Christ, we must make a choice to stand with Him and not allow it to change us or lead us to compromise the truth of our message. Now, what does that actually look like? Should we interpret this passage as asking Christians to completely reject culture and withdraw from society? I think we're going to see in, a, in just a few moments that that's not an option for us as Christians. But when I be, first became a Christian back in the 80s, I was convinced that I needed to get rid of all of the music that I owned. I mean, I was a huge music fan. And I had amassed a large collection of tapes. Yes, cassette tapes. I had well over 300, and it was a real source of pride for me. And if it wasn't Christian, when I became a Christian, I realized, wow, you know, this stuff, uh, this stuff is maybe not so good. I, I said, if it's not Christian, it had to go. And for, for me, that was everything. I didn't have any Christian music. But I wasn't alone in thinking that. My roommate in college did the same thing. So both of us spent about an hour one evening 
smashing his entire collection, which was, was far bigger than mine. And, and we really did have a blast doing that um, until we realized that we had to pick up the thousands of little pieces all across the room. But you know, some 30 years later, I think back on that experience and I wonder if it was necessary. See, I don't believe this passage is advocating that we reject culture, if that's even somehow possible. It doesn't mean we can't enjoy baseball or art museums or contemporary music. However, much of culture has become a vehicle of beliefs, ideas, and values that are contradictory to those we believe and hold as Christians. And when we stand with Christ it will necessarily put us in conflict with certain aspects and expressions of culture. And while we can enjoy and live in our society, we must be discerning. And at times, we will need to leave the camp. Ultimately, I think we can take a stand against those things in culture which are contrary to God's word without rejecting it wholesale. You don't have to be counter-cultural to counter the culture. If I can draw your attention back to Hebrews 11 for just a moment, I think we see a variety of approaches. That's that's the hall of faith with all the Old Testament heroes. We see a, a variety of approaches to how we can counter the culture and stand with Christ. Daniel. He's got a, a, a little uh, blurb in there about being in the lion's den. See, Daniel resisted the decree of King Darius by continuing to pray. And in Daniel chapter 6, we see him thrown into the lion's den without saying a single word. He simply put his trust in God. And God delivered him. But I love what it says in Daniel 6 of his enemies. They could find no corruption in him. See, he let his character and actions speak for him. But on the other hand, Moses was very vocal, ironically, uh, because he didn't want to speak. But he was very vocal. He, He went directly to Pharaoh to speak on behalf of God and his people. I think what it says of him in Hebrews 11, 25, and 26 illustrates perfectly that our author is trying to tell us here in chapter 13. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he considered the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt. Can the same be said of you? Because the culture and values of today's world are so often contrary to ours, When we stand with Christ and remain firm in his unchanging message, we will often find ourselves in conflict with society. But we must be ready to bear the shame, the reproach that Christ endured. We cannot be enamored with trying to appease and cling to today's temporary and transient city. We belong to and seek a heavenly city with eternal rewards. Third and finally, because the world's reaction to our message never changes, our response to the world must also never change. But it's not the response you might think, right? 
These final verses, 15 and 16, are a fitting conclusion to all that we've been discussing because they ensure that our response is exactly what God wants it to be. Just because the world derides us and attempts to lead us astray, we're not called to retreat from it. These verses very specifically tell us the exact opposite. Likewise, just because our message conflicts with the values and beliefs of the world, it doesn't mean we become a complaining and critical people. I think there's a great temptation for Christians desiring to remain faithful to God's unchanging word to slip exclusively into the role of culture critic where we're constantly railing against the evils of society. Church, if that's all we're doing, then we're falling short. And we risk coming across as moralizing, judgmental cranks. These final verses prove a good reminder to us that while we're called to be salt and light in the world, we need to do it the right way. So beginning with verse 15, through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now we just finished looking at verses that tell the church that they'll be rejected and that they'll suffer just like Jesus. And now our author shifts to talking about praise. And I believe it's a natural transition. Have you ever heard of the suffering saints? I'm not talking about the song we're going to sing uh, later, but or suffering servant. But uh, have you ever heard suffering saints? You know, it's actually a phrase that's used in theological discussions to talk about the reality of suffering and persecution that Christians face because of their faith. But in some circles, it has actually become a bit of a joke. Suffering saints are those Christians who take every opportunity to let you and everyone else around them just how much they're suffering. They're complaining all the time. And how easy it is for the suffering saints to complain, to slip into the role of grumbling curmudgeon. I mean, it's human nature, right? Unfortunately, it's not what God's people should be doing. 1 Peter 4.12 tells us, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad at His glory. In Acts 5, after being called before the Sanhedrin council, the disciples rejoiced because they had suffered shame on account of the name of Christ. Praise should be the Christian's natural response to suffering and rejection by society. We are continually to offer a sacrifice of praise to God. The original language here gives the sense that this is to be done through all circumstances. And in the context of a passage that talks about believers being rejected, that most certainly includes circumstances that are not favorable. Think of the Apostle Paul sitting in the Roman prison as he wrote Ephesians 5, verse 19 and 20. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God, the Father of everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The last part of verse 15 here gives us a tremendous insight as to why we should be doing this. That word acknowledge 
carries the idea of proclamation. It literally says, lips that profess or confess His name. When we praise God amid persecution or when we face pressure to compromise, it declares to the world the greatness of God. It offers a powerful testimony and the most compelling argument for the validity of what we believe. Our response to a world that is constantly seeking to lead us astray, that is pressuring us to compromise, or that is even persecuting us for our faith, is not to attack it in kind, but to proclaim the worth and glory of our God. If Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever, then we must declare the unchanging message of His work on the cross through lips continually singing His praises. But we're not simply called to speak. Verse 16 tells us to do good and share what we have with others. Now, that's not just talking about people in the church. The terms used here are general, and they suggest that our author has non-Christians also in mind. I think this is the proper understanding, given how chapter 13 begins by admonishing believers to not neglect showing hospitality to strangers and to remember those who are in prison. The phrase, do not neglect, expresses that it's not easy to follow through with this command. Again, it's it's far easier to simply shelter ourselves away from the world, to retreat to our own Christian community that doesn't face the challenges that the culture presents us. But we can't. We are called to be lights to the world, to preach the unchanging message of Christ, to be vehicles through which God's transforming grace is made known to lost souls. I was reading an article recently by Mark Deaver, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist in D.C., in which he related uh, the following letter written by uh, J.H. Thornwell, the great Southern Presbyterian theologian of the 19th century, Thornwell had noticed that churches in his day were moving in a dangerous direction, a direction that he feared might compromise the very message of the church. So in a letter written in July 1846, more than 150 years ago, Thornwell warned, our whole system of operations gives an undue influence to money. Where money is the great want, numbers must be sought. And where an ambition for numbers prevails, doctrinal purity must be sacrificed. The root of the evil is in the secular spirit of all our ecclesiastical institutions. What we want is a spiritual body, a church whose power lies in the truth and the presence of the Holy Ghost. To unsecularize the church should be the unceasing aim of all who are anxious that the ways of Zion should flourish. Thornwell saw money as a thing in his day, influencing the church to compromise its message. We could just as easily echo those same words today. We could, uh, you know, there are countless other things that we could substitute in there as unduly influencing us to sacrifice doctrinal purity. But it's the last line that truly speaks to me from this letter. What we want 
is a spiritual body. A church whose power lies in the truth. God's unchanging truth. And the presence of the Holy Ghost to unsecularize the church should be the unceasing aim of all who are anxious that the ways of Zion should flourish. Brothers and sisters, we need to pray for one another. We need to pray for our church leaders and for churches all around this world that we would all be gripped by the simple truth that Jesus never changes, that we would stand upon that truth, cling to that truth, teach that truth, declare it, preach it, whatever the consequences may be. Yes, the world will oppress and reject us because of our unwillingness to accommodate the changing values and beliefs of society. But we must be willing to endure the shame and the reproach that this brings. Standing on the side of Christ and proclaiming Him through our words and actions. He will give us the strength to do that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word, your challenge to us. I thank you that you are with us even to the end of the age. Give us strength. Help us to be a church that is unwavering in the truth. Thank you for our leaders. Thank you for their heart to stand up for the purity of the truth. Bless them. In Jesus' name, amen.